all right i guess i'm gonna start and say good morning to everyone who has tuned in to hear what the lord has given me to share with respect to christ and your eternal standing before god that's your chief interest in this business you want to know how you shall meet with the eternal righteous and holy god in whom there's no sin and be acquitted of your sin that's the interest that's why we gather around the teaching of the word to really understand the matter okay so let's go before the lord and ask for his blessing upon his word Heavenly Father, Lord, we bless you this morning again as your people. We ask for comfort in the truth of Christ. We ask that you grant us the eyes and the wisdom to see Christ uplifted, Christ as God's righteousness, Christ as our only hope. Lord, we pray for all those of your people who are in distress for one reason or the other. May you be with them wherever they are. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go to Romans 1. Romans 1, beginning at verse 8, and we are going to work our way to verse 17. Romans 1, verse 8 to 17. Apostle Paul, by the Holy Spirit, recorded and said, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making requests if by some means Now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift, so that you may be established, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Now I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you but was hindered until now that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. We have two titles. We have two titles that both could carry the message. Number one, the righteousness of God revealed. The righteousness of God revealed. And that's essentially 
the whole topic of the Bible from Genesis chapter 1 to Revelation. The righteousness of God revealed. And number two title is Not Ashamed of the Gospel. Not Ashamed of the Gospel. And I lied. I think we have three titles. <laughs> the third title is The Just Shall Live by Faith. The Just Shall Live by Faith. This is going to be a long message. I'm going to tell you that. This is going to be a long message, but there's a lot of detail. And the devil is in the details. So we're going to be tying a lot of things for your sake so that you understand what this issue is all about, what really is happening. Okay? So we have established that the audience of the church at Rome was a mixture of Jewish and Gentile believers, but probably with a Gentile majority. And the immediate circumstance of Paul's writing, Paul's reason of writing, was because he was going to be passing through Rome on his way to Spain, and he wanted to be refreshed together with them, and be supported on his way, on his way out to Spain. And you're going to hear more of that in Romans 15, as we discussed in the previous message. But in the bigger scope of things, God would not give us all that teaching in Romans just because Paul was making a missionary trip to Spain. Whatever issues or circumstances where at the church at Rome, God had brought them about and purposed to expound the gospel to his church and even to ourselves as it is today. So whatever issues you find happening in any particular church environment, the Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, all that is happening because God is behind it that he may bring clarity to the matter of Christ and the gospel. Yes, the context matters. But any understanding of context has to be made subservient to the larger revelation of God's purpose in Christ so that we do not get drawn into the local politics or issues of that particular church and end up missing the point. Whatever issues were there, as I said, God caused so that he would bring more clarity to the matter of Christ and his gospel. And so, Apostle Paul introduced himself as an apostle separated by God to preach what he called God's gospel. So what he shall unfold to us in the verses and chapters to come is an outworking or working towards an understanding of this thing that he calls God's gospel. So Paul was an apostle and preacher of God's gospel. And that is in contrast 
to the many other gospels that were being preached even in his day. People were preaching in his day. Other gospels. And in our time, we also have many gospels that are being declared, but that are not God's gospel. Yes, they have Jesus in them. They have grace. They have the Ten Commandments in them. They speak of obedience. But they are still not God's gospel. They talk about fulfillment of prophecy as we were talking before. Or Ezekiel 38 prophecy fulfillment in Ukraine. And yet that is still not God's gospel. And keeping the Ten Commandments has many people deceived. Many religious people have been deceived into thinking that the gospel actually is about them keeping or doing the Ten Commandments. Okay? First, people are deceived because the Ten Commandments are not the gospel. Okay? Secondly, salvation is not based on your obedience. It is not based on you keeping the Ten Commandments or any commandment. So do not assume to know what this gospel is all about, like many people do. Take the time. Pray and listen and learn. Repent and believe what God is teaching us about the matter. Because it seems that this is something that is very important to him. That he would give his son, that his son would come and die on the cross only for some foolish person to say, all salvation can be lost. That's foolishness. God is so serious about the matter of what Christ accomplished that in Galatians chapter 1, Apostle Paul two times repeated that if anyone should bring any other gospel that is contrary to the one that he had given them, they should be accursed, they should be burned in hell for God's glory. So that's how important this matter is to God. So the question that we have to answer for ourselves is, is what we are believing to be the gospel, the real gospel of God? Or it is the gospel of our church or the gospel of our parents? And I did not ask people about their baptism, did not ask them about their church, about their confessions of faith, whether they hold to the Westminster Confession of Faith or the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. I did not ask about their tithing record, not their prayers, not their fasting. No. Those things are not God's gospel. Those things cannot help you in the matter of which God gospel is the only answer or solution. None of those things can help you when you meet with God. You cannot run to those things to seek refuge 
So we can't define the gospel by church activities. We can't define the gospel by moralism, behavior modification, and all those things. Because when we do that, we miss the point for which Christ was revealed. So I'm here not to talk about what you are doing for God. God raised me to talk about himself. I am a God preacher. The matter of which is contained in what he calls God's gospel. And this gospel again concerns the son Christ Jesus of the seed of David who acquired weakness of the flesh due to the incarnation and the incarnation simply means clothing oneself with the flesh and yet was declared to be the son of God in power by the spirit of holiness and the weakness of Christ was not in sin but in adding a nature to himself that was below the nature of God even below the nature of angels that was the weakness it was not that Christ acquired the sinful aspect of humanity. No, he did not. That's why he was conceived of the Holy Spirit. Also, Christ was not made the son of God by the resurrection. The resurrection was only to prove that he was not as weak as people had thought him to be. That he was not just a carpenter. That he was more than the son of Mary, and that he was more than a Jew, even higher than the angels. This Christ is not a manger baby anymore. If you want to have a good New Year's resolution, destroy your manger sins. <laughs> because he has reason in power. And is no longer in the weakness of the baby in the manger. He is and was the son of God who is co-equal with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And this gospel concerns him as the second person of the Godhead. He is the center of it. God is saying, if you want to know anything, if you want to understand anything, even the matter of salvation, you have to deal with this one called the Son. He is the revelation of God. He is salvation. He is your righteousness. He is your everything. So it is all about Christ not in some things of salvation, but in all things salvation. Not in some things about life, but in all things of life. It's all about Christ. There's nowhere where Christ can be excluded. You can't understand anything on this planet, in this creation, apart from Christ Jesus. 
But in this matter of God's revelation, which concerns Christ, as he accomplished the redemption of his people. So this message is geared towards a particular understanding that we should have. It is about Christ as he accomplished the salvation of his people. So this revelation brings us to the knowledge of God through the Son as he accomplished a very specific or particular work of salvation, the salvation of a particular people. So Paul, as a preacher of God's gospel, was commissioned to bring the obedience of the Gentiles to God. And that was a very remarkable statement from a Jew who was very zealous for the law and even was persecuting the church to maintain the traditions of his fathers, the obedience of faith. Paul, what is that? What is that obedience of faith? That sounds like an antinomian idea to me. (laughs) Coming from a Jew. Paul, you should bring Gentiles to the obedience of the law. Yes, the Gentiles were not under the law of Moses. The Gentiles were the surrounding nations to Israel. They were not under the law of Moses. The Gentiles were the people who were without God in the world. Or hope. They did not have any hope. They were not waiting for any Messiah. They were just busy kicking it. Yeah? How could they be obedient to God apart from the law? That's the question, and it's a very important one. How can Gentiles who were never under the law be brought to obedience before God? God says, not obedience of law, but by the obedience of faith. So the gospel of God brings an obedience that is acceptable to God which comes by way not of law, but of faith. That's remarkable. (laughs) By way of doing nothing. That's what obedience of faith means. By way of doing nothing because of the Christ who did everything. And many in our day still try to do gymnastics, somersaults for those who are gifted and they throw tantrums when it comes to the distinction between law and gospel. They don't want to make the distinction which the Bible does. A distinction must be made or else we are declaring a false gospel. The obedience of faith versus the obedience to the law matter was deliberated at the council of Jerusalem after some men had come from Judea and were coming to Gentile believers and saying, unless you are circumcised according to the customs of Moses, you cannot be saved unless you are circumcised Unless you obey the law, you cannot be saved. That's what they were saying. 
And someone was trying to argue with me two days ago about Moses. Because I was telling them that Moses represents everything law. And they said, oh, no. The law was represented by the Levites. I'm like, oh, Moses was a Levite. Moses is he who went to Mount Sinai and received the law. It is he who took the hyssop and sprinkled blood on the covenant. Moses is the mediator of the law. So he represents everything law. And if you don't get that, you cannot understand who Moses is or the matter of law and gospel. My dear friends, it does not matter what part of the law you claim to impose as a condition of salvation, you are telling a lie on Christ. If you say the law is for sanctification, you are saying the law is for righteousness. You are saying this, that your law-keeping is necessary in the matter of what is called God's gospel because sanctification is required if one has to be saved. Sanctification is required. If you should be saved, then you have to be 100% sanctified. It is just not righteousness by itself. Sanctification, holiness is required And the question is, where do you get it from? Do you get it from the law or do you get it from Christ? Do you get it by imputation or do you progressively get sanctified until you get to that point where you think, oh, I think I'm ready to get in. But there's no verse in the Bible that says the law is for sanctification of the redeemed. It is not even hindered anywhere. There's no verse in the Bible that says the redeemed are sanctified by the law. It's not there. So it is false teaching that a believer is sanctified by the law. Sanctification is holy of Christ and is holy of his blood. And by the truth of the gospel, okay, as it is brought to us by the Holy Spirit. So God is not improving the flesh to make it fit for heaven. The flesh remains the flesh. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the incorruptible things of God. He will make all things new and he has already made all things new. Okay, so now to the matter of the Jerusalem Council deliberations, because of the man from Judea who came to the Gentile believers and said, well, for you to be saved, you have to observe the customs of Moses. Paul and Barnabas took issue with these men and their gospel. These were men from Jerusalem. If you read the New Testament, there's always trouble with the men from Jerusalem about their love for Moses. Watch out for the man from Jerusalem. Remember the man from Jerusalem who came and caused Peter to stumble in the book of Galatians. 
the man from James. They're coming from Jerusalem. And before Peter was hanging out with the Gentiles according to the gospel of God's grace. But when the man from Jerusalem came, Peter began to separate himself from them, to deny the gospel. And for that, Paul was very upset with, with Peter. But Paul and Barnabas debated them. And as a result of that debate, Paul and Barnabas were commissioned by the church to go to Jerusalem to meet with apostles and elders there to hear their understanding of law versus grace, to see what they were actually saying about this matter. And what that is saying is, do not accept people who say Jesus and yet want to circumcise you with Moses, circumcise you with the law. They have to be opposed. Okay? So Paul and Barnabas went to Jerusalem and they brought a good report about what God had been doing among the Gentile nations, bringing believers to faith in Christ. Okay? But not all in Jerusalem were impressed. They were not impressed. Let's go to Acts 15. Let's go to Acts 15, starting at verse 5. Follow the arguments we are building our teaching. Okay? And we need all these details. Acts 15, starting from verse 5. Luke says, But some from the religious party of the Pharisees who had believed stood up and said, It is necessary to circumcise the Gentiles and to order them to observe the law of Moses. So this matter of imposing Moses on the redeemed is associated with the Pharisees, the religious party. And that party has not yet died. It is still recruiting members even from among the Gentiles, as it is this day. The religious party of the Pharisees want people to observe the law of Moses. Verse 6, both the apostles and the elders met together to deliberate about this matter. After there had been much debate, after there had been much debate about the matter, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that some time ago, God chose me to preach to the Gentiles, so they would hear the message of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, has testified to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between them and us, cleansing their hearts by faith. Question. How are Jews and Gentiles cleansed of their evil conscience of sin and condemnation? It is not by the works of the law, 
It is not by their obedience to the law, but by faith, by obedience to faith. Cleansing their hearts by faith. That's the only way for your heart to be cleansed before God. It's only by faith. It's not by doing. Verse 10. So now, why are you putting God to the test? By placing on the neck of the disciples a yoke that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to carry, have been able to bear. And Peter says, putting the redeemed under the law of Moses is putting God to the test. (laughs) Is putting God to the test. So was Peter saying they could not carry the yoke of circumcision itself? No. It's not like you have to be circumcised 5,000 times. He was saying they could not carry the yoke of works righteousness, which the law daily demanded of them. They could not do it. And he called it a yoke that they could not carry. And yet some 21st Gentile wants to come and say, you should carry it. Or they can carry it. So what is the way forward? What do we do then? Verse 11. On the contrary, we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they are. Saved how? Saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in the same way as they are. Both Jew and Gentile are served the same way. There's no one who has their own way of being saved. By faith and grace of the Lord Jesus. There's none who is served apart from God's grace. None. But here, the reaction. Let us hear the reaction to that. Verse 12. The whole group kept quiet and listened to Barnabas and Paul while they explained all the things, sorry, all the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. After they stopped speaking, James replied and said, Brothers, Listen to me. Simeon, that is Peter, has explained how God first concerned himself to select from among the Gentiles a people for his name. People need to learn to read text. Did you hear what James said? James said, Simeon has explained how God first concerned himself to select from among the Gentiles, to select a people from among the Gentiles. And that means God chose from among the Gentiles a people for his name. God did not ever 
meant to serve everyone. That's election. Election was like an ABC of these guys' gospel preaching. They did not shy away from talking about election. It was very basic to them. And it should be basic to anyone who is telling the truth on Christ. Election is foundational. It is the bedrock of grace. There is no grace apart from election. So God determined to have his elect even from among the Gentiles. And James continued and said, verse 15, the words of the prophets agree with this. As it is written, after this I will return and I will rebuild the fallen tent of David. I will rebuild its ruins and restore it so that the rest of humanity may seek the Lord, namely all the Gentiles I have called to be my own, says the Lord who makes these things known from long ago. So God made this declaration, this promise about the salvation of the Gentiles from long ago, which is in keeping with what Paul said in the beginning of Romans chapter 1, that this gospel was not new, but was promised and spoken by God through the prophets and recorded in the Holy Scriptures, and it was God's gospel of obedience to the faith, or of faith for both the Jew and the Gentile. So the statement, Gentiles who are called to his own, called to be his own, is speaking to election, even among the Gentiles, as it is today. Okay? Let's go to Romans 1, starting at verse 7. Paul writes and says, To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. It doesn't matter where you are. Just put the name of wherever you are right there. To all who are in, beloved of God. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This peace is pronounced to those who are beloved of God. Right now with the current situation in Eastern Europe, everybody is talking about peace. Okay? I'm sure there's going to be peace at some point. But that's not what this is talking about. That peace is different from the peace that the Holy Spirit is telling us about. Because this peace is between you and God. There's nothing that you can do to make this peace with God by yourself. It's impossible. And yet the gospel says, grace to you and peace from God our Father. <laughs> and the Lord Jesus Christ. And that means there's no amount of anything that can happen to you that will take away the peace that God has given you. So the all who are in Rome is not speaking to all people who were in Rome without exception 
but all of the believers who were in Rome, beloved and called of God by the gospel, to them only was grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And to all the redeemed of Christ, the message is the same here and now, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That is God's message carried in his gospel. It is grace and peace to you. Grace and peace. People need to understand this. Again, I have to piggyback on the situation in Ukraine for you to have an idea of the contrast and the significance of these words, grace and peace, to you from the one who alone matters, who alone has power to destroy you, who alone is able to deliver you, from whose hands no one can deliver. And yet he comes and says to you, grace and peace to you. So why are these many preachers not preaching the message of God's grace and peace? Because they do not know what the message is all about. They do not know. They are ignorant of this matter. This message of grace which accomplished our peace. That's what God is saying for us to declare to his people. And God's people are desperately in need of hearing this message, the message of peace. So telling people that they need to stop sinning and be circumcised by the law for them to experience God's grace and peace is contrary to the message because the law is not of peace. The law is of terror. It is of thunder. Is darkness, is gloom. That's what the law brings to you. It does not bring peace. Some preachers say, I actually read this on Facebook a few days ago. I saw someone say, the law is of grace. They say, the law is of grace and mercy. The law. And they did theological gymnastics to try and clean that foolishness. But that is not taught anywhere in the Bible. The law is not the ministry of grace, but of death and condemnation. The law is not the ministry of grace. Telling people to look to themselves, navel gazing to find hope, and the evidence of salvation, trying to find peace, cannot be found in law. There's no peace. Peace is given by Christ, is contained in the message of the gospel. So the message declares grace and peace as something that has already been accomplished and given unconditionally. It has been given unconditionally in its fullness to all who are the redeemed of God. So Paul, what do you have to say to these who are beloved of God who are in Rome? So we'll begin at verse 8, and that is say, 
And that to say everything that we've said was just introduction. <laughs> Verse 8. Romans 1. Paul says, First I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. Paul thanks God and when he says my God he means God the Father. And he says this God he thanks through Christ Jesus because Christ is the only way to the Father. Jesus said that in John 14 verse 6. And that also begins to flesh out the significance of this son. He is the means by which even thanks is given to God. If anyone is not giving thanks through the son, they are not giving thanks to God. And Paul is thankful to God for their faith in the gospel that was being spoken of through the whole world, the known world of their time. And that could have been some hyperbolic language, but the point cannot be lost, that their faith had indeed spread and people had noticed something different. Because if gospel faith is being spoken of, it means Christ is being spoken of. It means the cross is being spoken of. Grace and peace are being spoken of. The imputation of righteousness is being spoken of. Verse 9. For my God is my witness. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son. That without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. Right there you already see the distinction between God the Father and the Son for those who deny the Trinity. Paul makes a distinction. God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son. So God is his witness to his unceasing prayers for them. And that to say Believers ought to always be praying without ceasing on behalf of all who are God's saints, even those that they have never seen as Paul was doing with the Roman believers here. Paul had yet to meet them and yet he was praying for them unceasingly. But praying without ceasing does not mean just endless jabbering before God. All night and in endless repetition of foolishness. <laughs> this is what people are doing. I was in Zimbabwe 2019 and well, this woman who was praying lunchtime in some big building that we were renting for our conference and they meet in that room for their prayers also and so I just saw her and she was 
walking back and forth and just be jabbering. And I was trying to extract anything useful from what she was saying. And there was nothing. She just was talking and talking and talking and talking. That's not praying without saving. It's foolishness. Jesus said, let your words be few. Don't pray like the heathens do because they think they shall be heard for their much speaking. Okay? So what does it mean to pray without ceasing? It means praying with a mind that is stayed on the subject matter every time you come before God. You are pressing on the one thing that you want God to hear you about. And that could mean you pray for one minute or two minutes and that's done for today. And then if you pray again tomorrow, you bring the same thing until God has done what he is going to do. By the way, if you pray for something, you are not the one who has started the prayer. God is always the first mover. He's the one who has caused you to start praying for that thing so that he'll be praised when he brings about the thing that he caused you to pray for. The sovereignty. So Paul, what were you praying about? Verse 10, making a request. If by some means now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. Paul was a man of high sovereignty. We are people who believe in high sovereignty. You hear a lot of professing Christians, even Calvinistics, and some sovereign grace people who say God is sovereign, but when you ask them what he is sovereign over, you realize they don't actually believe that God is sovereign. Okay, I will tell you my high sovereignty. The situation in Ukraine, everything is 100% by God. There's no one who is doing anything there that is not caused by him. He's moving every detail. It is he who is doing it. Otherwise, who is doing it? <laughs> it is God. Go read Isaiah 10. Okay. Paul understood that Nothing would happen apart from God. He understood that unless God had opened the way, then nothing was going to happen. Period. It didn't matter what. Even something as simple as visiting a person has to be granted by God. Otherwise, you're not making it. It is not going to happen. You cannot go and visit someone unless God grants it. Yes, we do it. Oh, I wasn't able to come today, but let's try next week. No, God did not grant you to go this week. And maybe next week you will grant it, but you never know. But then also, even the seemingly impossible situations for us, God is also able to make a way. And that to say, do not trust in your planning or ability to make a way for yourself because one day he may show you that you are not able to make a way. 
even in the seemingly obvious things that you've been doing every day and suddenly things are not working. Like, why are they not working? Because he never made the way before. It is he who was making the way. And I pray that this would happen to many people so that they may come to the knowledge of the true God who rules over all things. Because many have been mad to think that they're able to make a way for themselves in salvation especially. And much of what is taught as the gospel tells people that they can make a way by their own striving, their own running, by their own willing. No, that is not true. Christ is the way. And we cannot do anything apart from him. Yeah? But also at that, Paul says, I've been praying for God to open a way for me. And life is going to happen and is already happening to some where there's no way for them or it appears like there's no way for them. And God is going to take you through phases of life where it seems there's no way for you for whatever you want or desire to do in life. If God was not sovereign, then there's no way for you. Understand this. If God is not sovereign, then there's no way for you. But if he is sovereign, there's always a way. Because there's nothing that is impossible for him to do if he desires for that to happen. So understand your life and things in the context of that. You are not running the show. God will close doors and also open things. Even the very seemingly impossible ones, he opens. Okay? And God will make high and low people, he can draw them and put them right in the dust. Okay, just like overnight, like what happened? God happened. Okay? Verse 11. Romans 1 still. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift, so that you may be established, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Paul longed to see the believers at Rome, not at the Vatican, (laughs) but the real believers. The Pope and those with him do not believe the gospel. The Pope does not believe the gospel. The Roman Catholic Church does not teach the gospel. That's the honest truth. They don't. The Pope is a politician. He's not a gospel preacher. But Paul longed to see the believers in Rome that he may impart some spiritual gift. Now, there's a lot of foolishness that comes out from that statement by many who do not know the gospel. The impartation of the spiritual gift. Paul was not saying he was coming and going about dispensing spiritual gifts to people. The fact that they were already believers means they already possessed every spiritual gift in Christ. Anyone and everyone who is a true believer 
already has all the spiritual gifts in Christ. Because there are some preachers and ministries, so-called, that talk about impartation. And they blow the understanding out of proportion so that they may magnify their own foolishness and perceived power over a people who are ignorant. Making them to think that they actually impart spiritual blessings on people. So I've seen posters where a preacher, a certain preacher, is supposedly coming into town and one of the main things that he's going to be doing is to impart spiritual gifts. So they'll advertise their impartation sessions and people pay for that because they're ignorant and because they don't want to hear the truth. Okay? Spiritual gifts are not given by men. There's no man who gives another man a spiritual gift by the Holy Spirit. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4. Paul says, There are diversities of gifts by the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries by the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities. But it is the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healings by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another descending of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues, but one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing, underline that, distributing to each one individually as he wills. It is the Holy Spirit who does that. In the history of the church, it is the Holy Spirit. So there's no man who is going about imparting spiritual gifts to other people. And my question to these impartation guys is, why is it that they have ability to impart spiritual gifts and yet they do not know the gospel? They don't know the gospel. And yet they have ability to impart spiritual gifts. How is that working? How does that work? The giving of the knowledge of the truth is the most important thing that you could give anyone. So why are they not able to give the knowledge of the truth and yet they give the Holy Spirit? Just be crazy. <laughs> so, the spiritual gift that Paul was bringing to the Roman believers was not some special anointing to give them, but the knowledge of the gospel itself. Let us hear this again. Romans 1, verse 11 and 12. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith both of you and me 
by the mutual faith in the gospel. A spiritual gift so that they may be established. That is, so that they may be strengthened in the faith by Paul exercising the gifts that God had given him in the knowledge of the gospel. So Paul is he who was exercising his gifts in the ministry of the gospel to their own edification in the matter of faith. He was teaching them the gospel. That is the spiritual gift that he was bringing. And you should know this by now, that whenever you are in the company of someone or people who understand the mysteries of Christ, who understand the gospel, guess what happens when you are in conversation and discussing the issues of Christ? You get edified. That's what Paul is saying. That he brought the knowledge of Christ to them. And by his knowledge, they were going to be mutually encouraged and strengthened in the faith. That's what he was bringing. I have experienced this myself when I've traveled. And you're among people who are hungry to hear the truth. And after you're done preaching, they still want to talk and talk and talk and talk. I mean, like, they just don't want the session to end. That's what Paul is saying. That's the gift that he was bringing to them. So this was all about the gospel testimony, okay? That's all I'm saying. Verse 18. Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among other Gentiles. I do not want you to be unaware. I do not want you to be ignorant. That was Paul's way of saying, what I am about to tell you is something important. I don't want you to be ignorant of this matter. He said the same in 2 Corinthians 1.8. He says, for we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. We went through a lot of trials in Asia, man. We just despaired of life. We wished to die. Okay? So Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant of my longing to see you. Okay, not just coming to see you to take advantage of you. Just like for convenience sake, I am not just writing to use you just for a few days, few weeks as I prepare to go to Rome. Rather, I have long nursed this longing to come and see you, my longing for you was genuine, is genuine, and it is born out of the gospel. 
And God is my witness because I have been praying to him to open an opportunity for me and to come and see you. But then sovereignty overruled me. God did not open the way for me. I was hindered until now to come to you. That I may have some fruit among you also. Just like among other Gentiles. So that tells you that the Roman church was decidedly Gentile in its composition. That's what Paul says. But then Paul expands his statement and defines the boundaries of the ministry to which he was called. He says, verse 14 and 15, I am a debtor to both Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. He says, I am a debtor to both the Greeks and to the barbarians, to the wise and the unwise. Let us explain a few things. The Romans were the Romans and the Greeks were the Greeks. The Greeks were renowned for wisdom. That is according to Paul himself. The Greeks were not looked down upon by the Romans in terms of culture or civilization. They were highly regarded. They would have been a sophisticated people and culture and very respectable according to the norms of the day. But the barbarians were a different lot. (laughs) They were not necessarily a homogeneous group, but they were a people who were opposed to Rome and they lived outside of the Roman Empire. They were not really integrated with Rome to any useful degree. They were rebels in many ways, violent at times, and considered ignorant and uncivilized people by the Romans and the Greeks. So to be a barbarian implied being wild and primitive, bad or crude. And of course, some of the barbarians ended up under being under Roman rule. They ended up being under Roman rule if they had been defeated. But to all intents and purposes, they resisted Roman rule and integration. They wanted to live their barbarian way of life. Okay? And Paul says to the Roman believers, guess what? Inasmuch as I long to see you, you high and cultured, beautiful people in Rome, my mission does not end with you. Yes, I was commissioned to declare the gospel to the Romans, but also to the Greeks who were considered to be the wise and in contrast to them, also to the barbarians 
who were regarded as the foolish and uncivilized. And yet God had his elect among all these people, the wise, the foolish, and the despised. And if you have watched Titanic, the movie, you would have seen the high society, the civilized at the top of the deck. And the rest of the seemingly uncivilized, the barbarians as it were, <laughs> in many ways, the common people, they occupied the lower decks. And you can see how they were just relating to one another, the lower deck people, the common people, they were just kicking it. There was just no rules there, okay? No etiquette whatsoever. Okay? And just as a picture of the social differences, and Paul captures that in his gospel and says, well, yes, we have the Romans and the civilized and wise Greeks, but also we have these barbarians, the foolish ones, and guess what? God has interest in them. God has his elect among them also. But that God would be saving even the barbarians would have been an offense to those who considered themselves to be wise. That would have been an offense to the Greeks. I'm like, what kind of a gospel is this? I thought the gospel would be for us the wise. What about these barbarians? <laughs> Paul said in First Corinthians chapter one, the Jews seek a sign, and the Greeks Greeks seek after wisdom. But Christ and Him crucified is God's power and wisdom of salvation, and the means the foolishness of preaching. Okay, so I want us to go to First Corinthians chapter one so that we may develop more the matter of this foolishness. First Corinthians chapter 1, beginning at verse 26. Paul says, For you see your calling, brethren, or consider your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen. God has chosen. God has chosen. It's God who does the choosing. And if God is choosing, then there's no person who chooses. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Not many wise according to the flesh. But thank God, he does have his elect even from among the wise. But his election plays out the more in the weak things, in the powerless, those without strength or will to come, the base things 
the things that are despised, the things that are below base, things that nobody even notices. The base things will be like a fake chain ring or something like that. That's You think it's all glittering and you think it costs 5,000 bucks. And when you look at it, it's just like 25 bucks. Those are the base things. Then the things that are despised and things that are below base, they are below noticing. You don't even notice it. It is so useless to you that you don't even pay attention to it. Okay? And among them were the barbarians and many of the Corinthians. See the commotion that was happening in the Corinthian church. These are the base people. <laughs> and from them, God has his elect. These are his people. The very base people with all their foolishness. These are God's people. God has saved them. Even this day. But why? Why does God have the majority of his people from among this crowd of the weak, of the despised, of the seemingly foolish, of the seemingly uncivilized, so that no, no one would boast, so that none would boast. And that means if you're still boasting, then you are yet to hear and believe the true gospel. You can't say you're saved by grace and then claim to have a free will. Those things don't go together. They just don't go together. You can't be saved by grace and then claim your free will. And Paul says, I am a debtor to preach the gospel to them. And that to say, real biblical Christianity is not a glamorous affair as many have made it to be. It is a lot of those who come from among the barbarians, real sinners. And so do not try to make or convert the barbarians and make them into Greeks and judge them by the inferiority of their culture, but by an embrace of the cross. Judge them by whether they believe the truth of Christ or not. Many missionaries, so-called, even today, end up socializing the barbarians to their own culture instead of preaching Christ. That's what happens in the majority of these so-called missionaries. They end up socializing the people to try and improve their civilization instead of bringing the truth of Christ to them. Yeah? Let us hear more about the barbarians before we leave that topic. Let's go to Colossians 3 verse 9. Colossians 3 verse 9. Paul says, Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, Circumcised, no uncircumcised. Barbarian, Scythian, slave, no free, but Christ is all and in all. Scythian were not a different group of people. Scythian meant 
a more depraved version of the barbarians. The lowest type of the barbarians. And Paul says, this gospel of grace puts them on the same level as the mighty Jews and the Greeks. Even the Synthians are right there, equal footing in Christ. In 1 Corinthians 14, let's go to 1 Corinthians 14 from verse 10. Paul says, There are, it may be, so many kinds of languages in the world, and none of them is without significance. Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I shall be a foreigner to him who speaks. And he who speaks will be a foreigner to me, which means there won't be any communication because they're not hearing each other. Now hear this. Hear the proper rendering of that verse from the King James Version. Verse 11 says, Therefore, if I know not the meaning of the voice, I shall be unto him that speaketh a barbarian. And he that speaketh shall be a barbarian unto me. And that to say the barbarian's language or speech was considered unintelligible language in the traditions of the day. And Paul uses that in the manner of the cultural and primitive understanding of it, discussing the matter of spiritual gifts and the need to interpret what people were saying and says, you can't be speaking in tongues because that sounds like you are a barbarian. So that's a negative way. And be pulling this barbarian thing in the church, it does not work. You should not do that. You must be intelligible. You must be clear. You must be articulate. You must be understandable for edification. So don't talk like a barbarian. So Paul is saying you can't do that. So that gives you an understanding of what they understood a barbarian to mean. It was always in the negative. Okay? And so now back to Romans 1, verse 16, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes for the Jew first, and also for the Greek. So while those who consider themselves to be the higher civilization because of human wisdom and would have been ashamed of the barbarians, would not reach out to the barbarians' pauses, he, on the other hand, was not ashamed of the gospel. Do you see the play of words that Paul is employing here? The Romans and the Greeks would have been ashamed of the barbarians. But Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. That brings even a greater sense of foolishness than the foolishness of the barbarians. That's the comparison. The barbarians are known for foolishness. And Paul is bringing a message of foolishness. 
And he says, I am not ashamed of the foolishness of the gospel that I preach. The foolishness of the gospel is greater than the foolishness of the barbarians. And yet it is the wisdom of God. I am a debtor to the barbarians with all their issues. <laughs> but why are you not ashamed of the gospel of Christ? See that what began as God's gospel, Paul now calls the gospel of Christ. God's gospel is the gospel of Christ. Paul says, I am not ashamed of this gospel because it is the power of God. The gospel is the power of God. But what is the power of God? Is it me declaring it the power? Am I the power of the, of the gospel? No, I'm not the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel is Christ himself. The power of the gospel is Christ himself. Because he is the savior. The power is in what Christ did. I am here to declare the power not to cause it. He causes it. It is the power of God unto salvation. And that means a sinner is one who is in a situation, a dire situation, in which or from which nothing short of the power of God can redeem them. And that situation is that of sin, of lack of righteousness that God accepts. And those things that come with it. From this no man can deliver you no matter how much they preach, no matter how cute or how powerful, no matter how you cry, you cannot be delivered from this situation by anything that you do. No money can deliver you from the power of the grave, from the power of sin. No power or no money can deliver you from the pit of hell. God said, who can deliver you from my hands? No one. He has to do it. He has to deliver you from his own hands. So what is needed is God's power. And this power is in Christ. And in this power is what is found in the gospel. This is the power that redeems itself to the uttermost. I am a debtor to declare the power, but not to cause the power. This power of God made manifest to all and in all who believe. Faith manifests or evidence this power. Faith is evidence of the resurrecting power of this gospel. This is the only way God deals with the Jew and the Gentile if any should be saved. And it is by faith, not through the law or the works of the flesh. This power is through faith, not by the works of the law. The one who believes this gospel is saved. The one who believes in this gospel is saved. Adding any conditions for people to look to 
or to do is a denial of this power. And some people say, oh, yeah, that's easy believism. There's nothing easy about faith. It is impossible to believe. Believing the gospel of God is not easy. It is impossible unless God causes it. Okay? He has to bring his power to cause one to believe this truth. Also, this gospel is not conditioned on faith as the cause, as if faith is something that we self-generate. There is no merit in believing itself. The merit is in the person of Christ. The merit is in the blood of Christ. The merit is in the cross. Faith looks to that. Okay? The faith that looks to Christ alone is not natural to sinners. It is given by God to all who are appointed to salvation. So, what is unique or special about this gospel? Verse 17, that is our last verse. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. In this gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation, is revealed something. Is revealed the righteousness of God. And that means God's gospel, Christ's gospel, is about the righteousness of God. And this righteousness of God is revealed in this particular gospel and nowhere else. This is what God wants you to know about him. It is Christ. Because it is only through him that God's righteousness has been revealed. Christ Jesus reveals the righteousness of God. And he is the power of God. Christ Jesus, both the power and wisdom of God. So there's no revealing and knowing of God apart from the knowledge of this righteousness in the gospel. Apart from Christ, you cannot know God. You can have a lot of dreams that come true. You can even pray and have some things come to you and say, oh, I'm getting my answers my prayers answered. But if you don't know the righteousness, righteousness of God, you do not know God. The righteousness of God is speaking to the person of Christ. Number one. Number two is speaking to his work. So the person and work of Christ is what constitute the righteousness of God. His person is the righteousness of God. The Lord, our righteousness, right? And his work established that righteousness for his elect, the redeemed, those who now believe the gospel. The righteousness of God was promised, and yet it was hidden, but has now been revealed from faith to faith. And that means every generation of God's people had faith in Christ. If they were saved 
at any point in time. They could not be saved apart from the righteousness of God. Abraham was saved by the righteousness of God. Every generation. To whatever degree or level, depending on what God gave them to believe and understand about Christ in their time and generation. Yet, their God-given faith was in the righteousness of God. And those of us who have the fuller version of the gospel also approach God the same way with the same faith that looks to Christ and looking for the one and same thing, the righteousness of God. In the Old Testament, we have the types and shadows of Christ. They were testifying of the righteousness of God. And now, we who have been given the fuller revelation of Christ are looking back to the cross 2,000 years ago, looking for the same righteousness of God. So from faith to faith, from faith to faith, the righteousness of God has been revealed from Adam to Noah to Abraham to Isaac to Jacob and all the way from faith to faith the righteousness of God. We surely have greater content about Christ than many saints of old, especially before the New Testament. But we are not more saved by the greater revelation that we have now. We have the one righteousness. This righteousness begins with faith because it was always of faith and ends with faith. Hence, from faith to faith. It always began as the righteousness by faith. It was always a righteousness of faith. It is a righteousness that comes by way of believing and does not change. You may grow in your understanding of it, but it does not change. The righteousness of God cannot change The righteousness of God is captured even in sanctification, in holiness. It does not improve. You cannot improve on that which is perfect. The sanctification, the holiness that we possess in Christ cannot be made better. So there's nothing called progressive sanctification. Because what you're saying is the righteousness of God admits to change and improvement. There's nothing like that. It does not change. It has been revealed from faith to faith. Paul says, in this gospel, the power of God unto salvation is revealed. And so is the righteousness of God, which comes by way of faith because the just shall live by faith. And that means By this gospel, one is regarded by God as a just man. And that means they are regarded by God 
as justified. And a justified person is a righteous person on their worst day as they are on their best day. You don't change from being just today and unjust tomorrow when you possess this righteousness of God. It does not change. It is a status that cannot be changed. It's an identity that cannot be changed. You are not growing into it. You are already there. So what makes a sinner just before God? Is it by their goodness? No. And suddenly we see the offense of the gospel kicking in. Because many, even from among the reformed and some so-called sovereign grace, who want you to talk about your obedience, to prove that you are just. Yet the real matter is how God judges the matter. How does God judge things? God says, the one who believes in his gospel is a just man or woman and they shall live. That is, I need you to understand this. When God says, and they shall live, he means they shall not come into condemnation because of this gospel, because there are only two categories of death, which is condemnation, or of life, which is justification, which is the living. They just shall live by faith. They shall live and not die. As Jesus said in John 5, 24, most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. Jesus did not say, if you believe, you shall have eternal life. He said, the one who believes has. Faith proves that they already have it and shall not come into the judgment. They shall not come these are the words of Jesus. They shall not come into the judgment, but has passed from death unto life. So you already passed. Death is a condemnation. So if you have already passed, why are you believing as if you are still walking under death? So they just shall live by faith is not speaking necessarily to our day-to-day manner of thinking and living as many people think this to mean. It is not. Hear me, someone. This is very important. It is not. They just shall live by faith because of their many bills that they can't pay or because the heater broke or they have issues of life. So the way to deal with those issues of life is they just shall live by faith. That's not the conversation. That's not the conversation. 
Because many say the just shall live by faith and yet do not believe the gospel. So that can't be the discussion at all that dilutes the arguments that Paul is building to expound. Paul is speaking to the matter of salvation, of the matter of justification, and saying how shall you who is a sinner live on account of your own sin? So he's speaking to the matter of judgment and salvation and saying the sinner who is supposed to die because of their sins shall live and not die on account of faith alone in this Christ who is proclaimed in God's gospel. And in that gospel, their faith beholds him as their only plea in judgment and claim to God's blessing. And they are made partakers of that righteousness of God in which there is no flaw which God accepts as his own, the righteousness that pleases him and is alone the basis on which life is pronounced and bestowed to the redeemed. They just shall live in all of eternity because of the righteousness of God. And that means the righteousness of God is the main issue of the letter. Is the main issue for which Christ came. Is the main issue why we have the Bible. If this matter is not understood, people, preachers, professing Christians will say a lot of correct things and yet still not preach or believe the true gospel. Just saying a lot of correct things. If you talk to people and ask them about the gospel and Christ and the church, they say, oh, our church is a Bible-believing gospel. We use the Bible at our church. <laughs> yes, we should use the Bible in our congregations. But you still have to know the issue. It is about the righteousness of God. And that's what we are telling people and warning them about in the matter of the Lordship Salvation Preachers. The Lordship Salvation Preachers are not stayed on the righteousness of God as the only basis for the sinner to live before God. For them, the righteousness of God is not really the main issue to contend for. Okay? For them, it's about your obedience. Now, for the sinner, to the sinner we say, they just shall not live by their own righteousness. <laughs> if you are standing by yourself as a sinner, this is what is revealed to you. The wrath of God is revealed. And that is found in the law. Through the law, the wrath of God is revealed. Through the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Do you see the contrast? It's a very important contrast. Because people continue to accuse us of being antinomians. We are not antinomians. We are making the proper distinction between law and gospel. In the law is the wrath of God revealed. In the gospel is the righteousness of God revealed. 
So the righteousness by which you shall live is that which is through believing alone because there's no amount of doing that will cause you to pass from death unto life. No amount of progressing in righteousness that will make you reach the righteousness of God. Okay? It is just unreachable. And yet, by this gospel, even the barbarians and their foolishness, the Scythians and their law civilization have reached it. They have found it by faith because it is a righteousness of those who do not work, those who love their lazy boy chair, just kick it and rest. Yeah? It is the righteousness for those who believe because they just shall live by faith. Okay? Amen. We are done. They just shall live by faith because of the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel. Okay, we are done. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we bless you. We thank you for your goodness and mercy. We thank you for the many words that were spoken. I pray that you would give each and every one what they need to know and to remember about Christ, about his gospel, his righteousness that has been revealed from faith to faith. We thank you that you have caused us not to be ashamed of this gospel. We thank you that you have caused us to see the truth of Christ, even though we may be despised for it, as happened with the barbarians, even the Scythians, and yet that is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Lord, be with us and may continue to bless our ears and teaching and growing in the knowledge and truth of Christ. We honor you. May you keep us in our going in and out. Remember all your people, wherever they are and whatever they're going through. Lord, may you strengthen them. We honor you, glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.